a strong stereotype connected to yeah libraries being just a collection of books of course these modern libraries are, are just so 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 much more Welcome to Reproducibility, an open science podcast featuring early career researchers. I'm Sarah, coming to you from Lincoln in the UK, where I'm an immigrant on the land of the people who colonize the land I've called home most of my life, so-called Canada. Today, I'm really excited to welcome two guests from the University of Oslo's open research team to Reproducibility. We have Agata Bocinska and Matthew Good. So would you like to introduce yourselves? Go ahead, Agata. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks so much, and uh, thanks so much for the uh, invitation. Uh, my name is uh, Agata uh, Bohinska, and uh, as Sarah said, I work at the Open Research uh, team at the University of Oslo Library right now. Uh, but my background is as a researcher in uh, psychology and linguistics, uh, mainly. Uh, so after PhDing in uh, language, uh, mostly psycholinguistics and language development, and then postdocing in um, uh, psychology, also developmental uh, psychology, I uh, shifted a little bit to work with uh, open science and uh, reproducibility. So uh, so now I'm here at the University of Oslo and working with my colleague Matthew Good. Yeah. Um... Let's I introduced. I, my name is Matthew Good. I am formerly from Canada and now following my heart, uh, moved to Norway. Mm -hmm. And after taking a PhD studying um, innovation and entrepreneurship uh, at the University of Oslo here, I've uh, uh, jumped into the library and so uh, working here to build uh, something we're calling a digital scholarship center. Um, I had tried to find a better name, but yeah, we're stuck with that for now. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, working with different things around open science, uh, digital skills development, basically supporting researchers in various aspects of the research process, especially with kind of the digitalization of research and, and this push for for transparency and openness uh, in the research process. So, um, oh yeah, and I also have a background in engineering, which is also kind of a weird way that I've somehow ended up here, but uh, it's fun. <laughs> Awesome. Well, welcome. This episode, we're talking about institution-wide open science, building a digital scholarship center, and the role of libraries in the open science movement. So let's nibble on an appetizer to start, which this week is brought to us by Agatha and Matthew. Yeah, so uh, we thought for like a warm-up and a start to this discussion we could talk a little bit about a project we are now heavily involved in with Matthew, uh, which is a local project at the University of Oslo, but it is a university-wide um, project. It's called QualiFair, and it's focusing on making qualitative data more fair. And for those that don't know what FAIR stands for, it's findable, um, accessible, interoperable, and reusable data. So it's focusing particularly maybe on that reusability part uh, since making qualitative research and qualitative research outputs more reusable is very difficult. Um, and it's funded by this local um, hub nodes funding scheme at the University of Oslo that it's supposed to facilitate, facilitate more um, collaboration across the university between those researchers that maybe don't even know they're doing very similar things or they're dealing with very similar issues, right? Mm -hmm. So for this particular project, um, a group of researchers have, uh, in collaboration with us, with um, um, Open Research uh, and Digital Scholarship Center, they applied for funding to, to, to facilitate that collaboration into making qualitative data more reusable. So I'm currently coordinating this project. So I'm sort of partly bought out of my role to work on this project. And Matthew is leading one of the work packages in the project. Awesome. Yeah, I can also um, point out that it's primarily focused on qualitative data, but we're also looking at like um, specifically data that can be sensitive uh, and, and how we can also, in addition to being qualitative, but that has some kind of context sensitivity or um, uh, something with pr uh, private or sensitive information that may be difficult to share. So how can we 
facilitate that process and also um, give guidelines and guidance to researchers for how to work with their data throughout the process to, to enable that um, um, yeah, reusability if we can um, and to what extent that is possible. Yeah, because when you think about it, um, a lot of, um, I don't know, for example, interview data or video or picture data, um, even though you remove all the sort of directly identifying information, there might be still a lot of um, context there that can be indirectly identifying your research subject. So in the interviews, people might be, you know, talking about um, uh, what they do for work or what kinds of people they know or what kinds of hobbies they have. And if you put together all that information, even though you don't know their name or, or anything else about them, you might still identify them. So, so that's really challenging data to identify. But that sort of context sensitivity is difficult in another way too, because um, sometimes qualitative data is so locked into that one particular moment when it's collected. Uh, it's so sort of time sensitive in a sense that it, it makes sense only then and there. So how do you make that kinds of data reusable, right? Is it even reusable? Could other researchers even benefit from that data at all? Is there a point in putting so much effort into I, it? I was going to ask that. I was going to, you know, because when I took one course in qualitative methods, I was telling my prof about this open science stuff. And they were like, but why? Right? Like in terms of qualitative, we don't care about reproducibility in particular. That's not why we do the work that we do. That's not the questions we're trying to ask. We're not interested in this. And, and that's what you're saying, right? It's like, it's so specific to that time and to that context. So what, why are we trying, is it the imposition of quantitative values onto qual? Are we trying to like absorb yeah. or, you know, where is this coming from? Is it coming from qualitative researchers who want this? Yeah, so that so that reusability of qualitative research connects to the reproducibility question very tightly, and um, we uh, as a as a sort of um, uh, a side thing to that qualifier project into our involvement in these topics, we also started collaboration uh, with um, uh, researchers in a tier two project. It's a it's a large EU funded. Project Tier 2 stands for Enhancing Trust, Integrity, and Efficiently in Research Through Next Level Reproducibility. Uh, it's okay. a really long, really long name. So thanks Clearly. God for acronyms, right? So we can just do, <laughs> we can just say tier two, but just shout out to the tier two project because um, they are um, uh, sort of venturing out to, to this uh, epistemic diversity and to the diversity of different contexts of reproducibility, um, which is really difficult, exactly for the reasons that you said. I mean, reproducibility does not apply in the same way to quantitative research as it does to qualitative research. And so in this collaboration with Tier 2, we will be trying um, to figure out what reproducibility means for qualitative research and, and whether we should even use that term or whether we should use other terms, right? Um, I like how Matthew always says that, well, there are all these terms in, in qualitative methods books that already exist, like, I don't know, validity, right? Or all, mm. all these terms around the concept of reproducibility that maybe we could be using more in the context of um, qualitative research. So... Uh, yeah, so be on the lookout for announcements about some events uh, in Tier 2 project, also in collaboration with us. We are really, really, really looking forward to the products of this of this collaboration. Yeah, and I mean, just to give an example of what uh, where qualitative research could be reused is, um, is one of the partners in this project. Uh, they have a huge database of hundreds of videos from classrooms um, uh, and how teachers are, are actually teaching their kids at different ages throughout and different subjects and, and the value in being able to go through encoding this and then reusing these and seeing um, different, uh, being able to look at these videos from different perspectives. There's a huge amount of value, especially considering how much time and effort is put into actually filming these classrooms. Um, and uh 
I mean, we don't know what the value of something will be in 20 years, or maybe after the people in the video have passed away, and then this can be then released to the public. Um, there can be a lot of archival value here because we'll never again be able to do these interviews or these recordings of these situations ever again because this is a because it is so time sensitive. So I mean, there can be a lot of value locked up into these videos, even if they can't be shared immediately. Mm-hmm. I guess that comes back to the question the, the the question of balance between trying to do something for everybody, but also being tailored to every single situation. Yeah. I think it's, we're going to get more into that, I think, in our next, mm. next segment. Mm. Yeah, but just to to sort of wrap up maybe the discussion about the Qualifier Project, what's, um, and, and that will also tie maybe very closely to what we'll be talking about in a second, is that um, what I really love about it is that it, it actually really did connect researchers that didn't know about each other's existence that work with very different types of data, but actually meet very similar challenges. So as Matthew Mm -hmm. said, some researchers work with videos uh, from schools with teachers and children. Other researchers go out to the field and collect ethnographic, anthropological interviews or observations. Other researchers do DNA sequencing and they have like like pictures, like images of, of these cells. And you would never think these researchers had a lot in common, but then it turns out that because they work with qualitative data or context-sensitive data or identifying data that are very difficult to share, suddenly you can bring them into one room and they have a lot to talk about and, and they actually benefit a lot from exchanging these experiences. So, so this type of you know, building bridges across very different disciplines for increasing reuse of research outputs um, can be incredibly beneficial, even though from the start it might feel like, well, these guys don't have don't have so much in common. So so it's been really incredible to be able to contribute to that and and sort of help to facilitate um, uh, these connections. Awesome. All right. So I think that Nibbling might have used up more energy than I consumed, so I want a proper main. This week, we are learning about the University of Oslo's Institutional Open Research Team. So let's start at the beginning. What is this team and what does it do? Yeah, the our open research team is um, affiliated with the University of Oslo Library. Uh, so it is university-wide in the sense that, of course, the library is university-wide, but of course, we are not the only ones working with open research at um, uh, University of Oslo. Uh, there are also uh, research administrators in the Central Research Administration, Research and Innovation Administration. Uh, there is also IT department uh, at the University of Oslo, and uh, in the IT department, there are also uh, engineers and programmers that work on developing infrastructures for, for open science. So um uh, we are definitely not the only ones but uh we are the only ones that have the formal name of open research uh, team mm-hmm. um and of course and we will talk about it a little bit more of course it makes sense that we are housed uh, at the library um uh we uh consist currently i think we are are we 6 are we 7 matthew currently Good point. We didn't count how many we how many we are. Yeah. Maybe even more than eight or nine now. But yeah. Mm. Yeah, because oh, wow. we are actually there are new people there are new people constantly joining and and we are a very diverse team. Um divided uh, maybe a little bit in in half in a sense that um, some of us work with open publishing specifically. So it's like an open access team and they deal with, um, you know, publishing research articles and books, open access. And then others are more focused on open data, uh, open methods, reproducibility, um, uh, research visualizations too, and, and, and other aspects of, uh, of that sort of digital and open scholarship. So also some of us are more with um, advisor slash librarian background, 
others are more with research backgrounds. So both me and Matthew came straight from um, a more typical academic um, career. Uh, we were uh, researchers and, and we sort of switched gears to, uh, to work with open research, but then other uh, members of our team are uh, have been more on the the sort of library career track where uh, they specifically worked on these issues on open research and data sharing issues from the library perspective um so they they are definitely much more library experts than than we are we look at these uh, problems more from a, from a researcher uh, researcher perspective Cool. I know that you, when when we talked when I visited Oslo, we talked about um, some courses you were offering. So is that the open research team that offers these courses, or like how does that work? Yeah, yeah. go ahead, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> because here we are getting into into the nitty gritty of how we are actually functioning, and yeah. it's not that straightforward, maybe. Yeah, um, right. yeah. It's we do offer these courses every semester um, that are taught by various different people at the university library um so we have a, about six or seven eight modules i can't remember seven modules i think on different aspects of data management which we run on zoom um every semester they're about an hour long with time for questions and stuff afterwards if, if necessary and they cover things like data organization um, um introduction to metadata um all the different and of course kind of data sharing data, data sharing, sharing and, and archiving mm. and preservation yep. And then cool. and just in the interest of our listenership, is that just for the University of Oslo or can anyone join? Technically, anybody can join. Um, I think in the, if uh, in the future, though, we, we find that there's nobody from the University of Oslo participating anymore, we might have to kind of figure out a new way of doing that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah but, but as long as we as long as we run uh, these courses online, whichever courses we run online, um, uh, anybody can uh, anybody can join. So uh, so. Uh, people are uh, more than welcome to uh, to join these courses. Though I would say that there are some very University of Oslo specific aspects to the courses. Like we have our own, for example, storage guide of what services are available at the University Library, or sorry, the University of Oslo, that can be used for storing various sensitivities of or data with various levels of sensitivity. So, so yeah. Um, in addition to that, we also have a, a number of courses around um, open publishing, researcher visibility. Um, I've also have some courses around pre-registration and kind of reproducible workflows and how to you know, mm -hmm. think about that, uh, different kinds of practices. And then we're also invited into a, a, a master programs, PhD programs um, throughout the year as well. So it, it can be quite a, a lot. But we, a lot of these courses are, are we like to say, delivered via the digital scholarship center it kind of the digital scholarship center is the face of the library uh towards researchers actually in norwegian we even call it the, the center for digital research support which is also mm -hmm. maybe not the perfect name either but but we try and kind of as act as a hub or a gathering point for a lot of these different courses so we also will uh, advertise for courses that are delivered by the it department in various aspects here and um, from the central administration uh, when those do exist um, so it's really kind of a, a, a way to organize uh, and make it easier to find a lot of these courses that are, do exist. And also as a platform for maybe delivering new courses, testing out different courses that are maybe relevant here. Um, yeah, um, and here's where that maybe that complexity comes in. Because um, so as Matthew said, we are running some courses that are open to everybody at the university. So we have that research data management and sharing course series. We have open research and reproducible, uh, reproducible research course series and 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 these are delivered just openly to everybody but then we also collaborate with individual institute departments institutes faculties across the university to also deliver this content as a part of their master's programs or phd programs for example or we have uh, they can sort of um uh, ask us to to deliver also one time lecture or uh, or a course. So so we sort of both deliver the the regular open offerings um, and the the sort of individual more decentralized uh, courses. And when we deliver 
these uh, sort of more um, uh, local uh, courses, it's also not only us, the open research team, we also collaborate a lot with different subject specialists across the library, because in the library, you you have subject librarians, right? You have librarians that are specializing in, in medicine, in sociology, in law, in uh, mathematics. Well, not everyone or... might know that, so that's actually really good tacit information. Exactly, and um, um, yeah, very often, it, they are a lot of yeah a lot of people don't know that they exist and that they can help with things like data mm -hmm. sharing or systematic reviews or or search for literature or reference management or, or tons of visualizations or tons of things uh, yeah. that they have such an untapped resource mm -hmm. exactly that they have this incredible knowledge about. Yeah. So we try to uh, use that resource and, and sort of function a little bit more like an octopus with, you know, tentacles in in yeah. every single discipline and um, as much as we can and in every single department so that through our centralized open research group, we can go to these decentralized um, discipline specific resources and through them we can go to local departments and faculties and, and deliver that open research open research content and and here is maybe where digital scholarship center comes into play because our open research group is is a little bit more like a like a back end maybe to to all of mm. it and then digital scholarship center is more like a front end it's it's for researchers across the university so so I don't know, maybe that's a good moment, Matthew, to to say a couple of words of how you came up with that idea, with the that's Digital right. Scholarship Center idea and how you build the whole thing. Because I actually, when I started, I started here two years ago, and um, when I started, Digital Scholarship Center was still a project, but was already sort of going. Um, yeah. Uh, it, uh, I, I can't take credit for the idea at all. Um, it was actually a former leader at the library that um, got this written into um, um, one of the master plans around IT development at the university and uh, in collaboration with a couple of the other librarians at the university. And it's based on kind of their experience with visiting other um, internationally uh, libraries. So I think you can find ex similar uh, things in in libraries in the US. Uh, you also might see them called digital humanity centers or research data labs, research data offices. Um, in some ways, I think our the, what we're trying to build here is a little bit broader and that it encompasses a wider range of services and ideas than some of these other ones. It's hard to say, though. Uh, it really depends from the university to the university. But what we were really missing, I think, at the university also was a, was a gathering point or a sound, uh, for this uh, type of stuff. So anyways, um, this was written into uh these uh plans and then i was able to apply for money and got some funding for that uh, early in 2019 and then through a, a bunch of mapping projects and understanding kind of the needs and then trying to um also understand how the library functioned and and getting people you know on board with the, with the idea um we built it up through the pandemic, which is also a nice challenging aspect here too, trying to do everything digitally and trying to um, coordinate and, uh, and gather these, these things that the library already does. Um, also being not a librarian myself too. So it really ex demanded a lot of really going around and understanding um, all of these different aspects. Uh, and then, um, and then getting the enough people motivated for this and, um, and building a different uh, or, putting it together into a project where we've officially launched last june actually so we've really only been in operation for just under a year now mm. but it's, it's really been a collaborative effort between uh, various aspects of the library so right now we're still organized at kind of you know the medicine and natural sciences library and the humanities and social sciences library and and trying to get people from all these different uh, areas to to participate in the courses and to coordinate some of their efforts across the these these organizational divides to to start kind of thinking how what does the researcher actually need how are things changing how can we serve this these these researchers and and this also requires them that some of these subject librarians um, or um, I think they call it library liaisons or uh, information specialists so it depends how you want to call them. Um, 
changing their role with it, which has also been kind of change is always difficult so it's it's kind of getting used to this and understanding what this role requires and um through this process the the library also launched a new strategy um and one of the main ambitions there is to um really build up the library as a partner in the research process um uh because we do we are a n- neutral meeting place for libraries and and i mean libraries have also been a home for open science practices for you know since libraries existed taking care of of research outputs and putting it together so so trying to kind of re- build that role and making it clear that we do have these these research specialists and available that do have an understanding of the disciplines and can adapt the material uh, or these open science things into a language that maybe is understood by the disciplines and also actually understanding the methods and the, and what's important for these researchers um, really makes us a good meeting place for this. So, so how can we do that organizationally? And, and I think that's where kind of this, this center and, and where the success of our center so far uh, has come from. Um, not to say that we're perfect, we're <laughs> have our own challenges, but uh, definitely, but um, it's, it's definitely got a lot of momentum right now. Yeah, that's awesome. I was going to, ask a series of questions about like past present future essentially so in in its origins was this project always going to be in the library or was that something that had to be i don't know someone had to be convinced or was it just always obvious and then the present like what's your engagement been like as you build it and then where do you want to go with it yeah in the past yeah it was always a library this was kind of pitched as a library thing um based on this this uh i think one of the paragraphs I wrote was specifically on these hundred years of experiences library being a, a hub or a, a discipline neutral meeting mm-hmm. place. Uh, so um, so it was always kind of based in the library and based on what we've been seeing out there. So um, so we didn't have to make that argument um, so much, but we did have to um, convince the funders, if you will, that this is something that was uh important um i think one of the feedbacks i got earlier from one of the deans um at the university was like it's gonna be very hard to sell a meta meta service uh, basically a, a service for services right um so you guys need to be able to show results right away and that was luckily at the same time the project where agatha was hired into was the kind of the competence pro- competencies project or the competence building project for research data management so it's kind of like a way of, of showing um, what mm. the library can can do and, and showing that we can also deliver services on top of this. And then we also have a really thriving carpentries environment, software carpentries and, and data carpentry environment, which also kind of helped mm. create a foundation for us to build this further. And then it was trying to get the IT department to also see the importance of this and, and as, as an outlet for them to also provide if they want their training and their courses or, or you know, our university IT department is very entrepreneurial, so they they've developed a lot of services that are used nationally, uh, and so using this as a way to um, to show their services and, and markets market and 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 uh, and also get feedback for their services too. Like you know, what is the feedback getting for these services? What is the what are the usually complaints about these services? Which we I mean, there's always complaints, and I think. Yeah, and I and I think for the for the sort of past and present before we go to the to the future part, I think that Digital Scholarship Center is riding that wave of of open science movement and of digital mm-hmm. and open scholarship because there is such a huge need for training and education in all these new tools. I mean, why do we have open science? We have open science because we have digital science, right? Because everything at some point ended up out there in the cloud can be shared with just one click and suddenly we need infrastructures and we need new skills and we need a whole set of training and education and skills development materials so that we can do research in this completely new way. So so this is what sort of both uh, maybe enabled and showed the importance of having these meta services like uh, Digital Scholarship uh, Center uh, services. And as Matthew said, it's also inspired by other digital scholarship centers uh, around the world, because of course we are not the only ones. And 
Um, I don't know, Matthew, I think they're always housed somewhere with the libraries or, or typically um, uh, they are closely connected to the library. So they're, they, they can be centrally at the institution, but I think um, uh, there will be always some sort of connection to, uh, to the library in, in one way or the other. And also because, again, libraries are such a neutral ground and, and the sort of hosts of open knowledge for you know, years and years uh, since uh, since back in the days. So, uh, so I think that's definitely that's definitely what what enabled and showed the importance of this of this project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think underutilized as well. That might just be my my perception, but I feel like libraries are often forgotten. Mm-hmm. They're definitely in the world. It's all about buying things and you know having yeah. access and having to buy a subscription or buy a book or what have you. But like. The library has these things. It's and generally pretty easy to get a library card. And libraries work in this like really invisible way where you sort of don't notice you need them until you don't have them. Uh, I had yeah. this in just uh, incredible conversation with a colleague of mine that used to be at the university and then moved to a more private um, private research institution. And, and they were telling me, they were like, I got that, you know, I didn't realize the huge amount of effort and resources that library provided until I didn't have it. And they're like, mm. now I cannot even do, like, like there's no facilitation of open science and open publishing, of course, and, and like access to, to materials or like facilitation of data sharing in these important infrastructures because I didn't, don't have a library at this institute where I where I do research now. So they were like this sort of realization only when they lost it, they, they sort of saw how important it was for research and for really daily activities um, with research, connected to research. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's exactly like the invisible, invisible role of, you know, just giving, getting access to these journal articles is one obvious thing, but... Um, at the University of Oslo, uh, the yeah, the University of Oslo Library, um, we have a huge um, host. We play a host to a large amount of events around disseminating research results, um, and I'm not sure uh, how many people are really aware of that um, aspect of the library as as having this this host role, um, providing physical space for courses, for activities, uh, and that sort of thing as well, and enabling communities and community building uh, which uh, we are recently also slightly obsessed about uh, mm-hmm. I would say and uh, we definitely want to push for even having more involvement there and and sort of try to facilitate community building particularly around open research and research reproducibility since this is such a new topic and and so many researchers just just walk around desperate to to get some help and some advice and um and meet other researchers especially early career researchers of course um to meet other researchers that um know something about it or or have similar challenges so as digital scholarship center we try to host uh these communities where uh, the sort of circulation of of knowledge and and exchange of experiences can happen and the reproducibility tea journal club is actually one uh one of these platforms uh where we gather um uh researchers and students uh and we enable these discussions for them. So maybe our case is a um a little bit uh unusual case of where the library is hosting reproducibility tea because I know that many places around the world it's it's maybe a little bit more bottom up that one PhD student or a postdoc is taking the initiative and um uh and then they're they're meeting more or less informally. Here we uh, we we provide space and we provide coordination uh, for these events. Um, so we sort of took took over that logistics and coordination role for for the journal club. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I think I probably should have mentioned introduction that like that's how we know each other. I was visiting friends in Oslo and I had reached out to um, it was Dan Quintana who was at the university and was like, hey, I'm going to be around. 
and he wasn't in town, but he forwarded my email. Yeah, then uh, Dan to Quintana. Dean. Dan Quintana reached out to me, and he's like, "You might find this interesting. <laughs> Sarah <laughs> will be in town." And then, completely by coincidence, that was exactly the day because we meet biweekly for our reproducibility tea journal club, uh, and that was exactly the day when we were when we were meeting. So we moved things around and moved some topics around, and I was so happy that Sarah could talk. Um, about um, uh, sort of your experiences with uh, research reproducibility and open science, uh, especially in the context of, you know, how challenging it is for early career researchers right now and that whole culture change and, and all the sort of expectations uh, around. So, so I think that was uh, um, a really, really nice meeting. And, and that also led to us being here today. So, um, yeah, so one exactly. thing leads to another. Hmm. Yeah, I thought it was really important to talk about and to learn more about an institution-wide hmm. open science group or open research, sorry, group. And like, what does that look like, right? And it's kind of cool to know that it's actually quite recent, so something that is, is, is building um, and that it seems to be having quite a bit of success so far. Yeah, we would. We hope so. Yeah. Uh, I, I think from the feedback that we are getting from researchers and, of course, other members of our team are getting because, of course, it's again, it's not only me and Matthew. There are several other members of our team that are um, they're very much involved in um, in in teaching and and training and. Um, um, also policy development. So some members of uh, our team mm -hmm. are much more involved um, uh, in these discussions with central administration at the university uh, or these working groups at the university that develop the strategy and policies around uh, open science and, and open research. So some members of our team are also involved in, in these high-level um, uh, discussions. Um, uh, for me, at least, I, for example, I stay more uh, uh, sort of lower level close to researchers and, and close to hands-on help uh, and hands-on training and, and education. But um, um, uh, I also like to sort of bring up these topics of the importance of, so of high-level change, right? And, and, and pushing for more, let's say, for example, integration of open research uh, curriculum in uh, obligatory courses in, in PhD programs or master's programs. Yeah. That's, uh, that's mm -hmm. a very important step forward for us thinking about the future and moving forward. Uh, with the type of work that we're doing, that um, we will push more for harmonization of the curriculum across the university. And again, that's not only something that that's not something that only we will do or can do, but uh, but we can also have a role there. Right now, it's a little bit random, right? So if um, course coordinator at the department of, I don't know, linguistics or, um, or uh, psychology or sociology or, or philosophy, if they want to have open research content or, or data sharing content in their, their courses, for example, methods courses or ethics courses, because this is usually where this content fits best, then they get in touch with us or they put it in there themselves. There is definitely huge need for more harmonization of that content and how this content is delivered. Yeah. And if you just want to focus on kind of what's the future of the DSC, I would say um, definitely getting these courses more integrated into the uh, regular education of early career researchers would be one aspect of it. Um, make, improving the visibility of our center, which is, it's quite visible already, but, um, but it, there are still certain areas that don't know about us yet. Um, that's kind of one of our areas we want to work on. Um, further development of our courses is kind of a, a standard thing. You need to always update, make sure that we're always at the, the cutting edge and, and understanding these processes and getting them, um, uh, making sure that we're not saying anything completely out of date. Um, and other things are looking at kind of the future. Where is thing? Where are things going to be developing in five or ten years? How can we reinforce the library's role as a partner in the research process? Um, uh, 
artificial intelligence. That's very easy, of course. I mean, that's everybody's talking about it right now. But mm-hmm. how is this going to affect systematic reviews? Uh, you know, um, we've already working with a researcher in the medical uh, faculty uh, looking at um, iris.ai, which is a, a tool that's supposed to be or that can support uh, literature reviews uh, using AI. Um, and also can do data extraction from PDFs and uh, if you kind of specify what you're looking for. So how how is this AI and these large language models, how are they going to affect the searching process, especially when, you know, we've seen the explosion in publications? How do we create a, a, a good search and then dealing with 2,000 articles and then somehow trying to summarize those um, uh, without using extreme amounts of time for that? Um, how is the publishing process going to change in five to 10 years? Are we going to be seeing more of these interactive publications where the data is already is linked into the publication and you can actually kind of interact with some of the figures in the, in the, uh, or rerun the analysis in a integrated Jupyter notebook style publication? Um, you know, how, how is this all going to be look in, in, in that time period frame? It's, 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 there's a lot of possibilities here. Uh, and I think publishers are already, you know, with the push, the challenges from open publishing and, and, and coalition S and all these type of things. How are they going to change and provide other services based maybe on AI tools and sort of things? So there's a lot of really interesting questions coming forward from, uh, from the library perspective, from the, you know, how do I be a researcher, a good researcher perspective, uh, which are really kind of interesting topics that we're going to hopefully hold an eye on. Hmm. That's like equal parts, ooh, exciting, and also sounds terrifying. Exactly. (laughs) Like overwhelming. But this is why the need for these meta services again, right? This is why the need for people that are with one foot, they're still in the research world and like close to uh, all these issues on the ground and, and very much aware of what these issues mean for um daily research practice or high level uh sort of research issues and then they're with one foot into okay like how do we f- figure out how we how we actually do it that that sort of meta level and then what works and what doesn't work um and um and also the need for more research on what works. So the need for more meta research about which practices of all these practices that we are implementing and we are recommending also to researchers what actually works, what makes research more rigorous, what makes research um, better, more valid, and what makes the results more reliable. Because that's also not such an obvious thing. And, and there is a, a whole bunch of new ways, new tools um, uh, for, uh, for conducting research, but um, the, the meta research on those is lagging behind a little bit. So, so there is definitely huge need for, for that too. Mm-hmm. That's sort of encouraging in a way also, because it's the landscape of academia is a little bit bleak in terms of jobs, <laughs> but if there is this whole new thing that can start, I mean, of course you need the institutional support to create those jobs, but it's, it's a direction that we can go in. It's something that we can, we can advocate for. And that's a really important point because, um, so that was a little bit the case for me, right? When I was a PhD mm-hmm. student and then a postdoc, and then of course, what kinds of jobs are you considering? Well, I was super into research and super into what I was doing. And and of course, a traditional, so-called traditional academic career path, uh, I was 100% convinced that that was the thing for me, right? And then um, by the end of my PhD and, and during my postdoc, I was really thinking a lot about like how do I make what I do more meaningful? Are there other research-related jobs or jobs in academia that could allow me to not only produce evidence or collect data and, 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 and sort of add these like small bricks to the evidence wall, right? But 
would allow me also to have some sort of impact on how research is done um, and how science is really happening. And did anybody tell me about academic careers in the library? No, nobody told me about that. Of course, nobody told me about that. Uh, all non or so-called alternative career paths, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I hate that term because they're not really alternative. I mean, most people actually end up outside of the the sort of the, the traditional yeah. career a path or, or so-called professorship. Um, uh, so most events about, again, so-called alternative career path were about industry jobs. But there are actually jobs at the university that are not PI professorship jobs, but are jobs where that allow you to stay close to research. I mean, we can have uh, research time, right? So we can still do active research as a part of our um, our jobs and also allow you to have some sort of impact on how research actually is done. Um, and it's also uh, very satisfying to teach researchers about how they should actually do things, you know, to go and tell people, <laughs> you should do it this. No, I'm joking. Well, not really joking. I mean, it is it is satisfying, but um, yeah. But I think it's a really important point. Uh, and I think there will be, of course, increasing amount of these types of jobs, not only in the libraries, but we have increasing amount of jobs for data stewards or data managers um, at universities that are not necessarily housed at the libraries, but are housed locally at the research departments, um, at faculties. Research administrators are doing incredible uh, amount of work uh, that enables research. And, and the more I work closely with research administration and I see what they do, I have incredible amount of respect for, uh, for the jobs that, um, that they're doing. So there, there are so many jobs around enabling uh, research and improving research that um, I really think and, and that, again, that are still at the university, right? Not somewhere, not in the industry, not somewhere outside. That I think we should be really talking more about it. And, uh, I mean, I guess if we want to... Uh, it could be something that's good for a rant uh, as well, if we want to go into it as kind of... Um, as understanding, you know, or trying... Well, for me, it's it's trying to explain what the library does that's more than just books. Um, uh, trying to fight that... Yeah. that um, Stereotype. Stereotype of what the library, um, at least a, a, a academic library, is and what it can do. Yeah, that seems like a good point to to pivot then, uh, switching from solids to liquids in spilled the tea. So, to you, our honored guests, what would you like to rant about? That's yeah. definitely yeah. I think that's a really good point to to rant about the um, explaining the roles of research libraries and university libraries uh, and recognizing the, their role um, by, by researchers, by service providers, by um, uh, leadership. leadership, by IT uh, departments, um, I think that's definitely something that has been on our mind and, and, and has been a recurring theme in many discussions. And, and um, I mean, I think that's why having a center like BSC is, is nice is because you have a different name associated with it. You don't necessarily have to call it the library. You can call it the center. And people have, it's, it's, it's a different, uh, a lower barrier to entry, if you will, or to, to take to contact them because it's 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 um, doesn't have that stereotype with it, and um, which is unfortunate because the library is is a fantastic place. But if you go and ask somebody, hey, at the who were who are who's studying at the university, and it's like, hey, what do you use the library for? Well, books and a place to sit and work, um, uh, and mm -hmm. more rather than you know, like every once in a while you might get somebody, oh yeah, I got help with the research re reference management, or I got help with, um, but. We're hosting the, the uh, a writing center too, which does fantastic work about mentoring writers and how to do the writing process and, and that sort of thing too. And uh, all these really amazing events. Um, I mean, I think we had a rocket ship in the library one, you know, uh, yeah. that they had built at the uh, in the from the astronomy 
Institute. So it, uh, it's, um, it's some really amazing stuff and, and really a great place, uh, to, to, uh, to build communities, to, uh, to push for open science, to, to kind of take care of the outputs of that research as well. Um, I mean, cause that, I mean, that is really, if you want to look at it, that's kind of the core of what the, the library is and museums as well. I mean, I, I won't, they, they do an, an amazing work and there's some amazing stuff that happens at, at the museums as well. Um, you know, just the, the 3D pictures that they're taking of these Viking artifacts is really cool too. So, um uh so but that, I think I mean, yeah I think it's it's really interesting that it's it, it has such a different uh um uh it sounds so differently right like when you say I'm going to take a course at the digital scholarship center or I'm going to get a guidance at the digital scholarship center versus I'm going to a library course or I'm going to get some some help at the library and like why does it sound so different like I don't like why do we have that stereotype of library not being very, I don't know, tech savvy or research savvy. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm actually not sure. But like, I think I'm. I'm the carrier of that stereotype too. Like, I. I think I'm also biased in in my own head, probably in in some way. And and I've been thinking about it, and I'm wondering if that's also partly maybe the fault of libraries not being very good at marketing their services maybe it's because they've always had that sort of invisible role in the background that you know they're not the ones that would come out and 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 shout hey like we're doing all these amazing things you should come here i'm i'm not entirely sure but but there is definitely a strong stereotype connected to yeah libraries being just collection of books which is even not just I mean it's also an amazing thing that there are collections of books but also of course these modern libraries are are just so 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 much more um than that and um uh, I think we should definitely try to fight this stereotype in one way or the other I think we are trying that with Matthew in our everyday practice and and like trying to get people to realize that there are lots of researchers working at the libraries, lots of people with, with incredible tech backgrounds too. I mean, the people that I'm surrounded with in, in everyday practice, I would have never thought that this is how my everyday um, in a library would look like, right? Working in the library is just so diverse teams, people with incredible backgrounds, people with expertise in the topics that I would just like not even not even thing um they could have and of course incredible academic expertise I mean people that are just incredible academics and and that still do lots of active research and and know and really know how to do it well you know mm. I mean it's just it, it's just incredible to look at so um uh so I think that's definitely part of also um, our mission, uh, in a way, through uh, delivering all the this open research content, reproducible research content, or, or digital scholarship content in our trainings, in our courses, in our guidances to researchers, we we also try to spread the the, the sort of message of you know this is this is what libraries are doing these days, um, and of course that's not only University of Oslo, that's the case around the world. Um, Municipal yeah. libraries too, like they've yeah. also gone digital and offer courses and offer all sorts of resources for any type of person. Yeah, that's part of the beauty of it. And like I, I caught my, I spent several days in the Halifax library. I was visiting Halifax and looking around, and I, I caught myself judging some people for like coming in for a nap. And I was like, wait, no, no, this is for everybody. Mm -hmm. This is what the library is for. It's for people who might not have internet at home, it's for people who might need to access a phone, for people who might need any kind of service, printers. I don't have a printer at home. Everything oh, happens at and the I, library. I think that the new downtown so library, cool. the new downtown library in Oslo has a recording studio and uh, yeah, you can go uh, play drums. I mean, how amazing board is that games in the library? 
yeah so the yeah they have sewing machines you can go and and you can do like textile work and i mean it's just incredible and also for for specifically for research skills i very often say that when i was postdocing at new york university um a lot of programming and visualizations Mm -hmm. with like r and python that i learned was at New York University Library, actually. They were running these carpentries courses. Matthew already mentioned them. For those of you that don't know what carpentries are, it's it's this global organization for teaching basic data science to students and, uh, and researchers. So um, basic sort of coding, mostly in R and Python, but also Git and GitHub use and, and shell and Unix shell and, um, and other sort of data science related skills for research. Um, and yeah, a, a, a lot that I, that I'm still using today in everyday practice, in my data analysis, in, in data visualization is what I learned at the library at NYU. So, uh, so thanks NYU library. Uh, really, really appreciate <laughs> that. Of course, I learned tons in the lab where I was at the department of psychology too, but, but the sort of like feelings, the filling the gaps in my knowledge uh, and getting some sort of basic understanding of some things that a lot of that happened um, at the library. Yeah, and and uh, if I could rant more about also just communication at the universities, I don't know if it's uh, like you have all these faculties that they're all their own kingdoms, and then you have the institutes which their own their own kingdoms again, and then trying to get any kind of communication out. Uh, it's very decentralized. Is, 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 uh, but that's why these communities are like, I mean, I, we go, I'll circle back to this whole point about building communities um, uh, as kind of one of the key aspects of what we do. Um, and Carpentries is, a, is an example of that community, reproducibility. Um, we create, uh, we've created this Digital Scholarship Days event every January as well, which seems to be kind of a sweet point for getting researchers when researchers actually have time to attend. Um, and, and just creating a space for them to meet people across disciplines and maybe, and, and I mean, it, it only takes one spark to create a, create a really cool project. Um, it, it doesn't take much. Uh, and if you can get one spark out of these events where you've created somehow a really good connection between people who wouldn't otherwise have met, um, it's, it's, it's more valuable than you think. Um, uh, I mean, me studying innovation too, that's, the more sparks you can create, the more innovation you're going to generate, and and a lot of these generate uh, these this innovation comes from um, meeting people you wouldn't otherwise meet, and and, and trying to combine information in in, a, in new and, and uh, ways that you wouldn't have thought about otherwise. So, so I think uh, um, the library as a home for this type of activity is is really critical. Mm-hmm. So lesson here is go to your library <laughs> use your library get a library card for your municipal library it's one of the first things i did when i moved to lincoln i went to get a library yeah. card and build partnerships but not only, sure but not, only not only go to the library but like really use the library right like mm-hmm. really not only not only go there but like try to check out what they are doing what kind of resources they are offering you how much you can learn from these people there, um, uh, and since we are talking here today mostly about uh, open science and reproducibility, how much you can learn about that, how much they can facilitate and uh, that that learning process and, and help you implement it um, in your daily research practice. Uh, and that's maybe especially uh, good tips for early career researchers like PhD students, postdocs, where maybe these practices are not really implemented in your lab just yet, but you feel like, well, I should like get on, hop on that train, right? Because that train is going and research (laughs) assessment is changing. Um, And very soon, those that are PhD students now and will be applying for faculty jobs or other academic jobs in a few years time, they will be assessed according to also these open science practices or these reproducibility practices. Um, so it's really important that they, they 
learn about that and uh, and not every PI will have time to teach them or even willingness because because not every PI is up to speed on on that so so here definitely uh, the library is the place to go if your local library of course offers that type of support we are very lucky ours does but as you said right it's it's a very recent development because the Open Research Group um, was established two years ago. Um, and of course, before that, there were, of course, there were lots of librarians or staff at the library working with Open Research, but maybe it was not as visible um, as it is now. So uh, in many institutions, many universities, many libraries, it's a very recent um, development, but it is a, a quick development. So hopefully these types of services or this type of research support will be available many places um, very, very soon. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a good place to drop the Arthur theme song or the library song. Definitely. definitely. <laughs> we'll, we'll Let's do that. <laughs> it often comes up. It's one of those like songs that has. I mean, you can also sing. We don't need to drop the song. You can you can be the one who. Pass. Pass. All right, and last but not least, I need my sweet fix. So let's clear the top of the tea tray of its delectable desserts with some tacit knowledge. So. I'm going to ask Agatha and Matthew, what are some of the things that you wish you had known that weren't explicitly taught to you? Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say something about kind of how you're communicating things is kind of important for, for getting engagement. So, you know, using the correct language that people understand is, is, is really, I, I think, where I was successful. I managed to get people to participate there. But I, I'm wondering if I should change it a little bit to saying, you know, like the library is a great place to build a partnership with if you for your research projects, and and you can. Um, uh, we have researchers in the library who who are likely in your field and can contribute in some way, shape, or form, and and we can be a good partner there as well. That's something that you're definitely Absolutely. not taught. And, and maybe um, uh, to sort yeah. of add my bit of uh, tacit knowledge uh, here, that it's maybe also related to that, that coming back to the communities and community building, that role of libraries in in building communities. And, and that's also through the people that already are at the library and, uh, you know, can provide you with a lot of knowledge and they... Uh, they also know what's happening at the university or across the university. And, and, and here we are again coming back to that university-wide open research or, uh, or, or research support and um, uh, development. Um, because many people at the library can connect you to, to other people um, across the university. And uh, through initiatives like reproducibility that is, again, in our case at least, housed at the library, through these types of hubs like we are involved in here at the University of Oslo, like the Qualifier Hub that we were talking at the very beginning um, uh, of this episode about, um, through carpentries, through all sorts of these community building initiatives, um, we can help you uh, as a researcher and and also we as researchers can uh, can learn more so that's something that uh, nobody told me when uh, when I was a PhD student or a postdoc uh, or I wouldn't even think uh, that you know joining communities uh, would be would have such a huge role in becoming a better researcher you know and and in improving science and and here, maybe just a, a, a very quick um, to wrap up shout out to a preprint that came out just this weekend um, about 11 strategies for making reproducible research and open science training the norm at research institutions. And that's work led by Frederica Kors. Um, we can link the preprint uh, in the show notes, but... Uh, of course, there they go through all these different strategies for, for making open science the norm. And community, 
communities and, and joining communities and building communities is a big part um, of their recommendations, in addition to, of course, training and, uh, you know, courses and, and implementing open science in existing curricula. But I was, when I was reading through that yesterday, I was just so happy to see that, um, that this role of communities um, is, uh, is, is really stressed and uh, accentuated there. Uh, so I, I second that, um, and I encourage everybody to, uh, to check out the preprint. And, and I also encourage all the libraries um, uh, around the world to, uh, to get more involved in community building if they, if they don't yet, whether it's through these existing communities like Carpentries or Reproducibly Tees or, um, or other types of communities, or um, um, they can, of course, come up with their own, right, depending on the focus that they want to uh, take. So that's maybe a very long bit of tacit knowledge, but uh, but I feel very strongly about that. So I think so I think that can be very useful, uh, useful uh, tips for for researchers out there. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, and for sharing your experience of this work that you do. Um, this has been a wonderful just celebration Yay. of libraries <laughs> episode, and I'm really excited about that. I'm glad it's like what it turned into. So we're going to wind it down for this week. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening. I'll ask Agatha and Matthew if you are on social media and anyone wants to know more about you or the work that you do, where can people find you? I'm um, both on Twitter and uh, Mastodon, sort of maybe equally active these days, but maybe vouching more for Mastodon. Um, uh, on Mastodon, you can find me at um, agatha at fettyscience.org. Uh, so feel free to follow me there for, for different tips and uh, information about open research and reproducibility. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Agatha Bohinska. So my name and my last name. Um, so that's a, a little long handle, but, um, uh, but I think, I hope you will... Hope you will find it. Uh, I'm I do exist on LinkedIn too, but I'm not really active there. So, uh, so I think Twitter and Mastodon are better ways of connecting with me. Cool, Matthew. Yeah, I'm technically on Twitter, but I couldn't tell you my handle. I have no idea. I don't really use it very much. Um, and I am also on LinkedIn, I believe, but I, again, I'm not very active there either. So social social media hasn't really been a, a major focus for me, unfortunately. So email. Matthew.good at ube.ueo.no. If anybody has questions, you can easily contact me there. The, the old-fashioned way. Cool. Does the Open Research Center have any, or team have any social media presence? Digital Scholarship Center uh, doesn't have really social media presence, but we have a newsletter. If you would like to know what's uh, happening at Digital Scholarship Center, you can uh, go to um, our website and sign up for the newsletter. So I think we can also link the website maybe in the show notes so that everybody can, uh, can check it out and uh, see what, what we're up to. Yeah, wonderful. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah underscore Sove or on TikTok at Madame YYT. That's M-A-D-O-M-Y-Y-T. And you can, of course, always follow Reproducibility on Twitter at Reproducibility. And you can always find our podcast on any podcatcher. And share it with your friends, anyone who you think might be interested in this kind of thing, anyone you want to convince to go to the library and have a celebration of how great libraries are so again thanks for joining us this week and we will see you next week thank you bye, bye. thank you bye